gospel. Husbands, let your tender initiative shout the gospel. And then everybody, let Jesus define how beautiful you are. All right, so verse number one, wives, let your actions shout the gospel. So as we jump into this, similar to last week when we looked at the subject of servants and masters, context is key here. And so as Peter goes into, you know, wives be subject to your husbands, et cetera, et cetera, uh, two things to note here. First, the context Peter's speaking into is a situation where you have a woman married to a man, and she has become a Christian, and now she's in a situation where she is now married to an unbeliever. Or conversely, you have a guy who's come to saving faith, and he now finds himself in a situation where he's married to an unbelieving woman. So Peter's saying, okay, so how do you act in that type of setting? It's, it's immensely practical. But more than that, he's speaking into a situation where women are viewed as subhuman. And women are extremely vulnerable in this culture. So in the Greco-Roman society at this time, uh, the uh, paterfamilia is one way to refer to it, is how households were structured. And one of the things that it meant was the oldest male in the household, uh, he held all the cards. And so even if you had a married guy who was, say, 50, and his dad, who was 85 years old, was still alive, it'd be the 85-year-old male that uh, would have the say on what goes on. So the 50-year-old male may not even be able to own property until the eldest male passed away. But even more than that, the eldest male had the power of life and death over the kids in the home. And so if you're a woman and you have a child, the eldest male in the home is going to determine whether or not that child is going to be beneficial for the home. And if he decides not, then the child is going to be left out, maybe just outside to die, or be put on the steps of, say, a temple to then be sold into slavery. And so if you're a woman in this environment and you become a Christian, you're potentially in danger here because if you don't worship the same religion, the same gods as your husband who's not a Christian, this is deeply offensive. And he may have the power of life and death over your kids, or he may be able, he may be able to abuse you with impunity. And so this is the um, you know extremely volatile situation Peter's writing into. And so what he does is he helps women who, okay, if, if you've become a Christian, here's how you can still live as a follower of Jesus, but in such a way that it'll you'll be least likely uh, to be harmed. But also the way he writes, it elevates women's dignity so much, this subverts the culture and this whole idea of women being second-class citizens. So that's the context. So important to get that as he jumps into it. So what's one of the main things he instructs these women on how to behave in this context? And he says, be subject to your own husbands, verse 1, so that even if some do not obey the word, so obey the word in First Peter often refers to uh, obeying the gospel or becoming a Christian. So even if they're not a Christian... They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Okay, so there's one main thing that he highlights here, and notice it's the emphasis on words. Okay, so your husband's verse one may be one without a word by your conduct. And then don't let your adorning be, be external, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, uh, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So gentle and quiet spirit there doesn't refer to, uh, because, yeah, again, this verse is used all the time outside of context. What it doesn't mean is by you need to have a gentle and quiet spirit. It doesn't mean you're not allowed to contend for things that matter. 
or fight for things that are significant. What he's saying here is as you do contend for things that matter and that that are godly, you don't do so in in a way to be quarrelsome. Okay, so it's not your your external words, so to say, but your internal disposition is what he means by a gentle and quiet spirit. Okay, so don't be combative. Don't do it in a way that you just want to win the day or that you become bitter if you don't get what you want. So you don't just steamroll people. So you don't view people as just a barrier to what you want. But let your actions speak the gospel is what he's saying over and over and over here. And in verse 2 when he says, when they see respectful and pure conduct. So one way to translate that would be when they see your pure conduct in fear. And so anytime Peter uses the word in fear, he's talking about before the Lord. So what Peter's saying is when your husband see your respectful and pure conduct, not toward them per se, but when they see how you live before the Lord, this is going to have incredible power in their life and in the lives of anyone else watching that may bring them toward Jesus. Okay, and so what he's saying here is, in, in summary, and don't worry, you know, for those of you who are trying to get agitated, he's going to get to men in a minute. But he's saying, for women, like, what are the what are the two main things that, not all, but many women may be prone to use in a negative manner in order to control things, either in the home or outside the home, when things aren't going as they want? So one would be your words, right? So a lot of women are very, very gifted with words. And so when you're when all of a sudden, when things aren't happening the way you want, you want to control. So you might become manipulative uh, toward your spouse or other people. You might become extremely condescending. Uh, you might give somebody the silent treatment. You might speak poorly or disrespectfully about your husband when he's not around. That's this obscure uh, reference to Sarah in verse 6, where it says, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. That doesn't mean she worshipped Abraham or was like, oh, master. The Lord was just an old way of showing respect towards somebody. And this is referring to a situation where Abraham wasn't near Sarah, but she showed him respect and dignity as she spoke about him. So he's saying, don't fall back on your words as a way to try to control things, and also don't fall back on trying to use your beauty or your external appearance to try to control things. Instead, let your actions shout the gospel. And so just a a personal testimony of how this has been used in my life uh, to draw me closer to Jesus through actions being more powerful often than words or external beauty. So Kelsey and I have been married uh, 10 years as of this year, and she didn't become a Christian until she was in her 20s. So she became a Christian a couple years before we got married. And we got married, and I'll tell you, while Kelsey is incredibly gifted with words, and she is beautiful, here's one of the things that has made me much more of a mature person, a deeper person, and has transformed my life with Christ more than anything else. And it's been her actions. And so here's one simple example of that. I remember this was right after we got married, and it was one of our first Sunday mornings in our marriage relationship. And so I walk out into the living room, and, you know, it's a few hours before church on Sunday morning, and Kelsey's up before me because she's always up before me, and she's reading her Bible. And I go, Kelsey, what are you doing? She goes, um... I'm praying and spending time with the Lord. And I go, yeah, but it's Sunday. We're going to church in a couple hours. She was like, yeah, like, what, what, are, you, what are you getting at, Steve? I said, well, you know, like, you, you know, when it comes to your quiet time, like on Sunday, you, you kind of get a pass because you're going to worship God and, you know, he, he understands that. So you don't, you don't need to spend time, you know, with, with the Lord on Sunday morning. She just looks at me with the most confused expressions like what in the world does going to church later have to do with whether or not I spend time with Jesus this morning 
And what that revealed to me was for me, when I would do my devotion on Monday through Friday, I main, the main motivation for me doing it was because I felt like I had to do it. But what was so clear for Kelsey is she did it because it was the most life-giving privilege in her life. And so why wouldn't she do that on Sunday morning? And Kelsey's not perfect. She'd be the first person to admit that. But she's continued to do this like every single day for 10 years, even after Titus was born, continuing to do it. And it's been through just me seeing this habit that she has in her life, how often she prays. So she has names like all over her desk with prayer requests for people, many of those names being each of you here in this room for people she prays for daily, weekly. And it's been observing her actions more than anything she's said to me that's made me want to follow Jesus Christ more and more. That's, that's the power of your habits. That's the power of your character. So Peter says, let your actions shout the gospel to wives. Okay, so next he turns to husbands. Verse 7. So the first thing you'll probably notice is Peter wrote six verses to wives and one verse to husbands. And so probably one of your first questions is, Peter, what is this? You know, six verses to women and then one one verse to, to men. Typical dude, you know, what the, what the heck do you think you're doing? And what Peter's doing here is in this section of servants, wives, husbands, he's addressing people who are vulnerable in society. And so notice he gives 13 verses to slaves, seven verses to women, and then one verse to Men. And what he's doing here is he's going from those who are the most most vulnerable in society to the least vulnerable. So he's giving the most instruction to those who have the most to lose or are most at risk, which is slaves followed by women. And then, and then men, they are still there are still potential repercussions if they convert, but a man is going to you know have the best chance in society of, of not being harmed, you know, socially or physically. So that's one reason why he just gives one verse to men. And so he says. Likewise, husband, live with, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. So there's some trigger phrases in here, just FYI, we'll get to it. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, so the readers of Peter here, their minds would have been blown as they read this verse, because whenever household codes were given in Greco-Roman culture, and this, this was a common means of discourse. You talk to the slaves, you talk to the, the wives, and then you talk to the husbands. When you get to the wives, well, when you get to the husbands in this culture, almost every time it would say something like, husbands, make your wives obey you. But that's not at all what Peter does. He says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to her. And so Peter here does something radical. It's so countercultural, and he elevates women to a degree that our modern culture is still trying to catch up with. So what's one of the things, what's one of the things he says? First he says, uh, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, your wives are heirs with you of the grace of life. You can't bestow much higher honor than that. And when we hear that, okay, men and women equal in dignity in our American cultural context, that doesn't wow us because a lot of us have grown up breathing the air of Western culture, which is informed, like, so liberal democracy, a lot of the values that are intuitive to us, so, you know, human rights and liberating the oppressed and care for the poor and women and men having equal dignity and value, those things are intuitive to us and they should be, but they don't come from the Enlightenment. 
They, they don't arise naturally out of a secular view of the world where you don't have a God who creates men and women in his image. Now, these ideals that we hold to, even if we've severed the root, they come from Christianity. Okay, so I encourage you to, to try to be as shocked as Peter, Peter's readers would have been when he says, women are heirs with you of the grace of life. So equal in worth, equal in dignity is one of the things he says. The second thing he does is notice he says, live with them in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. So when you read that, initially it it might sound like to some of you like it's a put-down. And so the question you have to ask is, what does Peter mean by your wife is the weaker vessel? This 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 has been so twisted so many times, we have to be clear here. Is he talking about women are intellectually weaker? No. Is Is he saying that women are emotionally weaker? And I challenge you, any of you who think women are emotionally weaker, watch a sports game with a dude who really cares about one of those teams, and you'll see that men aren't necessarily stronger emotionally than women. Women are often more in touch with their emotions than men, but that, if anything, that may mean they're stronger emotionally just because they're more aware of what's going on inside than men. So he's not talking about emotionally. Peter, is he's a simple dude. He's a blue-collar fisherman, and he's simply pointing out the law of averages that, on the whole... Men are physically stronger than women. Now, there are exceptions. So when I worked as a strength coach, I trained you know, nationally ranked martial artists and wrestlers who were females who could kick my butt. Uh, I lifted with female power lifters who were stronger than me. But on the whole, and you know this, men are stronger. There's a reason why if you're out on the street and you see a male-female couple walking down the road and you see the woman punch the dude in the arm, you think, oh, okay, he probably just said something stupid. But if the dude punches the girl... You or somebody you call is going to intervene, and you should, because there's a difference, right, in physicality. And so when when Peter says, honor your wife as the weaker vessel, and then he goes on to say, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, so in other words, in no uncertain terms, men, if you ever, ever use your physicality either just your presence or through actually touching the woman in a way to coerce her or manipulate her into doing something that that violates God's law. It's a sin. It's unacceptable. And God so despises it that he will cut off his presence from you. That's why it says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And so as a sidebar that's really not a sidebar, Ladies, in all tenderness and love, if a man in the church, in your home, anywhere, ever, ever, tries to use his physical presence to manipulate you or coerce you in any way, that creates a poisonous environment that's wicked, and it harms you, and every single person connected to that situation. And you are under a moral and personal and spiritual obligation to seek help, whether it's from your church or the authorities or anybody who can help you. And I understand there are loads of layers with this scenario, but we have to be very, very clear about that. So please do not stand for it. Okay, and so Peter says, see where he's going, as men, while women may be prone to using their words or their looks to control 
what are men going to be prone to do? Maybe to use their physical presence, you know, through aggression. But he says, contrary to that, let tenderness toward your wife and everybody around you shout the gospel. And so, what are some practical applications for today for men who are married and or men who want to be married and are thinking about, you know, living in such a way for a woman that they want to marry? And so, while one of the ditches that men fall into is aggression, the other ditch that men often fall into is passivity, right? We just like to check out and, you know, let our wife do all the chores and, you know, take care of the home and, you know, take initiative with the finances and all those things. And I, what I'm not saying is, you know, there are like how roles take place in a given home can look very different, but in general, a temptation that men fall into is just, I'm going to kick back on the couch and let my wife do all the work. And so when Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way, another way to translate that is to be to exercise such considerate care of her in every aspect of life. And so what, what, are, a few, what are a few practical applications for her husband? So first, a way that you can exercise tender initiative toward her Peter says, showing honor to her. So husbands, do you, do you honor your wife? Do you celebrate your wife? Do you spend far more time, you know, 100 to 1, celebrating her strength, celebrating her beauty, praising her in the things that she does well more than you do pointing out her flaws or thinking about her flaws? Is it clear to your wife that you are immensely physically attracted to her? Do you find her gorgeous? And in your private life, you keep your eyes for your wife and for your wife alone. If somebody were to ask your wife, who is your number one cheerleader? Would their immediate answer be, that's easy, my husband. He's my number one cheerleader in every area of life. There are just simple but powerful ways to honor and celebrate your wife. Number two, how, how can you take initiative in a very tender way? Be the one to initiate reconciliation, if at all possible, always. And I don't care if you feel like you were the one who was in the right and she was in the wrong. If there has been some kind of tiff in your relationship, no matter who you think started it or who you think is more rationally right, be the one to initiate reconciliation. And admitting, because there's always a component where you're being selfish, admitting where you had a selfish, sinful component in that, and pursuing reconciliation. And, you know, when Paul says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church in Ephesians chapter 5, think about how Christ initiated reconciliation with you. Who was, who was the right one in that party? Jesus was 100% the right one. And yet he was the one who pursued you first, who loved you first. So always be the one to initiate reconciliation. And then number three, be the one to, be the one to initiate and to lead spiritually in your home. And what this doesn't mean is you know more about the Bible, per se, than your wife. Kelsey knows many things about the Bible that are, that, that are more than me. What, what I mean by that, by leading your wife spiritually, is simply being the one to initiate things like, let's, hey, let's pray together. Or initiating conversations like, what's God been teaching you? Or sharing with her things that the Lord has been teaching you. Or when, you know, you guys are in a situation where you feel like you don't want to invest in a neighbor or a friend or someone in your church community, being the one to initiate, hey, you know, I know we don't feel like doing this, but we really need to do it. In the American church, it is a, it's a simple fact that, generally speaking, wives carry the spiritual weight in the home. And friends, may that not be so in our church. May that not be so. So husbands, 
Exercise tender initiative toward your spouses, honoring her and celebrating her, initiating reconciliation, initiating being the one who's, who's leading things spiritually in the home. Okay, so wives, use your actions to shout the gospel. Husbands, use your tender initiative to shout the gospel. Finally, number three, let Christ be the one who tells you how beautiful you are. So let's go back to verse three. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. He's not saying that physical beauty doesn't matter. So God invented beauty. He is the fountainhead from which all beauty flows from. What he's saying here is, and hear this, your worth and your beauty is not based on your external appearance. Your worth And your beauty is not based on your external appearance. In the culture that Peter's writing to, women's worth was defined by how they looked and how they met or how they lived up to societal norms and expectations. How barbaric, how demeaning. Guys, in 2,000 years... I don't know that we've progressed a single step from that. And so what Peter is saying here is so, so ahead of the game. We're still trying to sprint to catch up to it. And this idea that you are valuable to the degree that you are physically attractive or to the degree that you meet the expectations of others or society is wrecking unbelievable havoc in the lives of women and men. And even very well-intended movements in our culture, like the body, you know, like the body positivity movement, which where its promoters say things like, you know, don't you dare tell me I'm too fat. I like my body. I love my body. I love the way I look. Now, what's good about that is they're trying to make sure that we don't define beauty by one particular body type. That's good. But you notice there's still a fixation and obsession on appearance. There's still an obsession with with expressing myself in a way that you see my body. Even people that express or that, um, you know, that put out like revealing pictures of themselves on social media and say, I'm not doing this for men or I'm not doing this for women. I'm doing it to build confidence in myself. You're still obsessing over how you look. Okay, and, and underneath those, those posts and the veneer of confidence is churning all kinds of insecurities and constantly questioning, am I enough? Am I worthy? Am I actually beautiful? And what Peter is saying, that the power of the gospel is that intrinsic to the gospel is your beauty is not defined by how you live up to expectations or how you look. How beautiful are you based on the gospel of Jesus? And he says it a few verses prior in chapter 2. It's that Jesus Christ, the one, who, the one to whom the most beautiful things in the world are just the dimmest pointers, the fountainhead of all beauty, he emptied himself of his beauty and his power because you were so precious to him that when he saw you running in a trajectory away from him, he ran after you and went to the cross and bore your sins on his body on the tree to give you life. That's how worthy you are. And if that's not a basis for worth and beauty, 
I don't know what is. And so first, I don't know who needs to hear that, but I hope you hear it. And that you believe it, even just a degree more than you did this morning. And as we think about this, like, what is true beauty? Okay, and here clearly it's Christ defining you and then your character. Okay, so it's your character that's, tr- that's true beauty. Are you growing in things like becoming less envious, less vain, less prone to your emotions being dictated on your circumstances, less prone to self-pity, less selfish, comparing, yourselves, comparing yourself to each other's less, to, to other people less? Okay, knowing how to be loved and to love other people. That's true beauty. And so a few things here, just a, and a couple closing applications. One is if you are a single and you want to be married, think about how you vet candidates for your marriage because it's hardwired in us to look at the externals. Maybe not external appearance, but how intelligent is this person? How hip is this person? So what you do is you walk into a room and you immediately screen out seven out of ten people because you're looking at the externals, even though one of those seven that you've screened out could be incredible spouse material. In fact, maybe better spouse material if you're seeing as God sees. Okay, so that's the first thing. And even as you think about the, if you're, whether you're married or not, thinking about how do you try to project yourself as beautiful to other people? Is it through the externals, gifts, talents, looks? Or through your character. Okay, number two, do this thought experiment with me. I want you to think about an insecurity you have. Okay, something that's based on the externals. So it could be something about your body. It could be something about your smarts or lack thereof. Or, you know, something about your gifts or lack thereof. And think about how the gospel applies to this. And so I always want to be careful with using myself as an example because the pulpit is an appropriate place to just air all your stuff. But I think it's helpful sometimes for you guys to see how I need Jesus on an ongoing basis. And so as I was thinking about this for me, um, one of the things I've always been insecure about and self-conscious of is, and you know, you guys know this and make fun of me for it a lot, which is fine. But so, (laughs) thanks, Nick. Yeah. So I have, you know, I have an incredibly, you could say, a monotone and melancholic disposition. So when I speak, it's generally pretty slow, and my voice doesn't fluctuate that much. Even when I'm excited about something, it doesn't sound like I'm that excited about things. And I'm generally so slow of speech, i.e., I don't really feel like I have much to say unless I've thought about it for a long period of time. And so people made fun of me for this all the time, like all throughout grade school. One of my nicknames, and don't you dare use this, was, was you know, oh, Solemn Stevo. There he is just kind of sitting in a corner looking all sad. I'm like, I'm not sad. I'm, I'm having a perfectly contented time, okay? And so how that's played into my job as a pastor is, see, the archetype of most preachers is your, a lot of preachers are very dynamic and very animated, very charismatic in how, in how they preach. And you kind of get the sense of, you know, there's so many things they have to say. And so the voice that I hear all the time is, Steve, you don't have a right to stand up there and preach the gospel publicly. Because you're boring. You talk slowly. 
People are going to want you to stop talking five minutes after you've started. And this was a hindrance for me. I mean, even in the beginning when I was thinking about going into ministry in general, but preaching in particular, because I didn't meet, you know, the, the social expectations of what, you know, most preachers are like. And so how do I get the power to stand up here every Sunday? And it's not through self-affirmation techniques. And I have doubts every single Sunday. And you see, the, the wonder of the gospel is that Jesus says to you, your worth is given to you by me. Not how much you adhere to social expectations. And when you are united to me th- through my perfect work for you on, on, my, on your behalf, Jesus is so good that he takes your weaknesses and your deficiencies and he redeems them and repurposes them in a way that his power is made perfect in your weakness. That is amazing. And so whatever your vocation is, or whatever that thing is that you wrestle with all the time, am I worthy, am I good enough, it might be in your job, it might be how you look, it might be any number of things, that's what Christ offers you every single day. Um, I was reading some of the great divorce the other day. That's why I used a quote two weeks ago. Um, but so there's a, there's a scene in there that captures all of this really well. And so the scene where this guy, he's traveling to the outskirts of heaven, and he has a guide. And when he, he shows up to heaven, he sees this woman, and she's radiating with light, and she's beautiful beyond bearing. And around her are all these young women and men dancing and singing, And he writes, if I could remember their singing today and write down the notes, anyone who read the score would never grow sick or old. And then he goes on to say, he asks his guide, you know, who is this woman? He says, only partly do I remember the unbearable beauty of her face. Is this, is that, I asked? No, said my guide. It's no one you've ever heard of. On earth, earth, her name was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. But she seems to have been a person of enormous importance, I, she was, she was one of the great ones, but you'll have never heard of her. Don't you know that fame in heaven and fame, in, fame on earth are two quite different things? Well, she must have had a huge family, I said. No, she had none. Well, then who are all these young men and women by her side? The guide said, every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Everyone that came near her became themselves. And now the abundance of the life that she has in Christ from the Father flows into them. There is enough joy in the little finger of a great saint like Sarah Smith to awaken all the dead things of the universe into life. And you hear what he's saying is, you might have great talent, you might look like a supermodel, those things are going to fade. But you live like Sarah Smith, pursuing character and serving others more than yourselves, and you'll have beauty forever. And I know that looking at a verse like this also, it might be hard for those of you, whether you're married or not, who, this, passages like this can be painful because it might either be, I want a spouse that I can live this way toward, 
or I want children, or I wish my marriage was like this. And the wonder of the gospel is, is Jesus also says to you, if you live like Sarah Smith, you'll have the true family forever. You'll have true beauty, wherein by which through the power of Jesus also there will be enough joy and strength in your little finger to awaken all the dead things in the universe unto life.